Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Well, if you would stand for our scripture reading. Today is Palm Sunday, very important day in uh, in the life of the church and a very important beginning of a very important week, maybe I, I think the most important week in the history of the universe. So I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 19. This is one of the uh, Palm Sunday triumphal entry stories. Each gospel has an account. This happens to be Luke's account. I'll start in verse 28, read through verse 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. I invite you to pray as we dive into this. Holy Spirit, we gather before you as a small sliver of your people in this town and in this world. And we are grateful for this privilege of opening your word, of reflecting once again on the magnificence of the story of your passion. And as we begin today to contemplate your kingship, I pray that you will make the familiar strange to us, awaken our curiosity, uh, that you will speak to us through this story, through your words, through what you have declared for all time uh, and throughout history, that we might examine and explore and think about who you are as king as it relates to this world and to our lives. So, Spirit, we open ourselves to you and we pray that you will speak to us, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, this week, beginning today... We remember and we consider what are undoubtedly the most important events in the entire history of the universe. Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. It, it's a, 
uh, a week that is just packed with important days. Each day of this week belongs in the Hall of Fame of days, if there was such a thing. Things happen this week that further unveil God's mind-blowing plan to liberate humanity and all of creation from the curse of sin and the power of evil and the power of death. Things happen during this week that are quantum leaps forward in God's redemptive story. And things happen this week that transform and continue to transform life right now and for all eternity. And so this is the first day of an indescribable and indescribably joyous week. The first day of a week that is literally bursting with hope where before there was no hope. Bursting with goodness where there was a whole bunch of badness. This is the first day of a joyous week because this is a day where we reflect on and think about the goodness and the hope that bursts forth through the events of this week. Hope and goodness for life Right now, today, hope and goodness for the healing of souls, power from God to heal relationships, and hope and goodness as we think about the future. So Palm Sunday really is a day to raise our hands. It is a day to bow down, wave our, raise our hands, wave our fronds, all in honor of King Jesus, even if we're not exactly the hand-raising types. It is that important. This is such a significant week. This is a week upon which we stake the claims of our faith, that things that happened this week that we commemorate starting today and throughout this week, all of our chips are in this bucket. All of our chips are in this pot. As followers of Jesus, we are saying, this is the week where we are reminded of the substance of who we are as followers of Jesus, and that something happened some 2,000 years ago, and it changed the trajectory of the universe, not just our lives. So, that's all true about today and about this week. But there's another different kind of mood that is mingled in with Palm Sunday joy. Because Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, as Luke tells us, and he's being hailed as a king, and he's being treated as royalty, but a few days later, he will leave the same city in a body bag. So in this sense, Palm Sunday is a lot like everyday life. Because on the one hand, there's hope, and there's celebration, and there's joy, and there's goodness, but it is all tempered by pain, and by rejection, and by sadness. Palm Sunday is full of this kind of seesaw effect, we might call it. There's both an up and a down. There's both a high and a low. There's all this good, but it's tempered by some stuff that is bad. Some people who are in relationships, uh, if you watch them, if you listen to them, they don't know how to function without this seesaw effect. If she's up, he has to be down. If he is up, she has to be down. It's rare when all involved are kind of trending in the same direction, excited, positive, hopeful, looking toward the future and enjoying the blessing. And this seesaw effect, this back and forth, this wow, so good, but tempered by not so good, is in plain sight here on Palm Sunday. In the span of three of the verses that I read from Luke chapter 19, Luke describes three different groups of people. He says Jesus' disciples 
were joyfully worshiping God, and they were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You can hardly contain, they can hardly contain the wonder, the celebration, the goodness of what is happening and who Jesus is and who they discovered him to be. But in the next verse, the Pharisees in the crowd are concerned about what they think is blasphemy. And they say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Here's this chorus of celebration being tempered by these religious people saying, calm them down for their blasphemy. And then in the next verse, just a few moments later, Jesus approaches and reaches the front edge of the city. And the whole city stretches out in front of him. The city of Jerusalem. And he looks at it. And Luke tells us that he wept over it. Because he knows in just a few short days, cheers of king will give way to shouts of crucify. He'll be arrested, he'll be tried, he'll be sentenced, and he'll be killed. And the evil and the death and the despair he came to defeat will gain one last victory. And he knows all of this as he looks at the city and it grieves his heart. So the gamut of emotions are all here on Palm Sunday. Celebration, joy, pain, rejection. Defeat, in short, I guess we could say life is wrapped up in this Palm Sunday. And yet rising out of this muddled scene of emotion where there's some confusion and some uncertainty and some questions, rising out of this muddled scene is this statement shouted by Jesus' disciples, which is ultimately the focal point of Palm Sunday. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Rising above all the other things, rising above everybody's opinion, rising above the pain and the rejection and all the rest of it is this phrase, this statement, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Words lifted straight out of Psalm 118, verse 26 of Psalm 118, and Psalm 118 was understood by the Jewish people as a psalm about the coming Messiah. It was a psalm about the conquering king who would one day come and who would finally liberate them from all their enemies and from all their oppressors. And the Jewish people of the day recited Psalm 118. They knew Psalm 118. They understood it pointed forward to a time when the king would finally come, when the anointed one from God would come and be their deliverer. And this is what they hoped for. And so to apply these words from Psalm 118 to Jesus was a clear statement about who these handful of disciples thought Jesus was. His disciples, Luke says, sing this out as he rides into the city of Jerusalem. It is the entrance of a king. And so for a few minutes today, I want us to reflect on the kind of king Palm Sunday reveals Jesus to be. And the first thing that jumps off the page is he is a humble king. You can see up on the screen there is a picture not taken at the time of Jesus, I don't think. But this is a picture of the Mount of Olives and it's taken from the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem looking back toward the Mount of Olives. So when we read in Luke's Gospel about Jesus riding out of the Mount of Olives, that's what it looks like pretty much today. You can see it's Rather different, but you can see the mountain, you can see all the trees. And so, you know, those who know these things say there remain olive trees on that mountain that would have been there at the time of Jesus. So that's kind of the sense of 
what we're looking at. He's coming in from the northeast edge of the city, and he's up in those trees somewhere, coming down a road or a, a trail of some sort, and his followers put their coats up on the back of a colt, Luke says, or a donkey, others say, to provide this makeshift saddle. They put Jesus on top of it. And as he rides down the Mount of Olives, his disciples praise God for the kingdom power, Luke says, for the miracles he performed, the kingdom power that had been on display in the life and in the actions of Jesus. And they're celebrating. He's the one. Psalm 18, he's the one. We've seen what he can do. We've seen his power. His disciples set their coats on the ground in front of him. Think of it as the red carpet carpet treatment in the first century. Other gospel accounts tell us that people were waving their palm branches as Jesus rode by. Palms being a sign of victory for a conquering king. So the palm held in the air. The king was cheered as they rode back in after defeating their enemies. The fight was over. The war was over. The competition was over. And hail the victor, here he comes. If you look up on the screen, that's the second picture. And that is what's called the Golden Gate, believe it or not. It's the city wall of Jerusalem, and many people think that is where Jesus would have entered into the city of Jerusalem. So he's coming out of the Mount of Olives, and he's headed toward, we'll just go with it, that gate to enter into the city of Jerusalem. So here's the stunning scene. Jesus the King being hailed by his disciples, but he doesn't have a robe. He doesn't have a crown. There's no band playing his entrance. There's no big entourage protecting him. He's riding on a donkey. He's not riding in a chariot. He's surrounded by ordinary people, not surrounded by dignitaries. He's about to enter this ancient and important city where he's being hailed as a king here on Sunday, but on Friday in this important important city, he will suffer and he will die. And the whole of Jesus' life from the very moment it began on this planet was a counterpunch to the arrogant, ego-driven, power-grabbing, me-first kind of attitude and posture one might associate with power, one might associate with a king, or one might associate with someone who has authority. In other words, Jesus incarnated humility. He just incarnated humility. He was born in a barn to an unknown peasant girl, her carpenter husband, in a podunk, mean-nothing town called Bethlehem. Humblest of beginnings. Not royalty stuff, not born in a palace. He spent his first 30 years, he lived to be about 33, and his first 30 years, nobody had any idea who he was. Except he did, and maybe, as time went on, His parents did. 30 years in obscurity making chairs out of wood and other work as a carpenter. No castle, no impressive entourage. His followers were peasants. The powerful people were against him. He had no military strength. God in the flesh, mind you. He was a king because no one could do the things that he had shown he could do, like heal people of blindness and heal lepers of their disease and lift sinners out of the muck of their shame and forgive them. You could not do that unless you had great power. So they knew he had great power. They knew he was a king, but he was not a typical king because he was a humble king. And here's what I want to emphasize. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is like. So we say, a humble God. 
And that's just a strange sounding phrase. Power, authority, strength, might, but a humble God. He rides in on the back of a donkey. His red carpet are the coats of simple people and the branches of trees. His sword is his word of truth about what is real. Jesus the King rides triumphantly into Jerusalem the same way he arrived in the world 30 years earlier and the same way he lived for those 33 years he was here. In other words, in complete and utter humility. And all of this, recognize, is incredibly purposeful because God is revealing himself through Jesus. So Jesus shows us who God is and what God himself is like. Jesus' humility points to the kind of king he is and to the way he reigns. And Jesus' humility points to the kind of God he is. A humble God. Doesn't even sound right. See, there's something about power and about the way it is handled that reveals who someone is and reveals what they are really about. It's almost infallible in its ability to expose and reveal who a person is. Power has a unique way of showing one's heart. Throughout history and right now in the present, evil and death and the curse upon this world and the human struggle with sin is showcased almost better than anything else in the way power is handled. And very often powerful people and powerful institutions wield their power over others in ways that are arrogant and destructive. But those who have power with humility turn people's heads. People take notice because it is a contrast that has a way of grabbing our attention. The NCAA basketball tournament was recently won by the University of Virginia. Last year, they were the first number one seed in the history of the NCAA basketball tournament to ever lose to a number 16 seed in the first round of the tournament. And this year, University of Virginia won the whole deal and they're now the national championships of college basketball. And their coach is a guy named Tony Bennett. For some of you who are, let's say, north of 50, not that guy who croons and sings and all that. Tony Bennett is an amazing guy, the coach of the University of Virginia. He's an amazing coach in today's era of me first and various power grabs that are so common in big-time sports. And this is a little side note. We won't elaborate on this, but maybe not so coincidentally, Tony Bennett is a Wisconsin guy. He's from Wisconsin. He played basketball at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. So it's what's called a mid-major school. Not one of the big ones, not one of the little ones, but sort of in the middle. His dad coached basketball at the University of Wisconsin. Basketball's in their blood. And Tony Bennett is just a really good dude. There's no other way to say it. And Tony Bennett is a Christ follower. And he is a rare dude in today's world of sports. Why? Because he's so amazingly humble. And I just love this kind of story. I, I absolutely love this kind of story. When I come across this kind of stuff, I have to first get over the hurdle of that the voice is going, you know, Mike, people don't care about sports the way you do. And I just keep muting that voice and going, I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. But 
I love this kind of story because it hits me with the substance only reality has. So many other things, it's just sugar. But this is the kind of thing that you bump into it and it doesn't move. You elbow up alongside of it and it's solid because it's based on substance and reality is substance. And this story so perfectly depicts the alternative way of the kingdom. After the University of Virginia won the championship, Tony Bennett said in an interview, and this is a long quote, he said, I think there was a bigger plan going on here, and I wasn't needed, but I was used in it. I hope that it's a message for some people out there that there can be hope and joy and resiliency. When that horn went off, I just put my head down and said, thank you. I'm humbled, Lord, because I don't deserve to be in this spot, but you chose me to be here and I'll give thanks. And I told our guys in the locker room, I said, put your arms around each other. Take a look at every guy in here. Look at each other. Promise me you will remain humble and thankful for this. Don't let this change you. I mean, that is not the way of your typical big-time coach in a big-time sport. Humility is a rare quality in people who have power. And it'd be fine for us to take a few minutes and talk about how Jesus' humility is to become our humility and so on. But the thing is, at least for me, I'm drawn to those who have power but who know how to handle it. They have power, but they're humble. They're gifted, really gifted, but they're humble. They win, but they win with humility. And when they win, they step back and let others step forward. When they win, they don't talk about how great they are. They talk about the people who did what they did. Or these are people who have all sorts of entrepreneurial energy and creative ideas and they have juice and they want to influence the world and so on and so forth but humility is the aura around them and when others interact with them they don't come away and go wow that's an entrepreneur they come away and they go wow that is a humble person see humility is Christ-likeness and the beauty of this Palm Sunday scene is the humility of Jesus, the King, the humility of the God we worship and the God we follow. And his humility pulls us in. It kind of raises, is that that really what he's like? You're kidding. He actually operates that way. We're talking about God, right? This guy, the one that's overall, he's humble the way it's described here. I mean, it's just not hard to be intrigued because it's so against the grain. We also see in this Palm Sunday scene a disappointing king. The first verse in the Bible that foretells the coming of a Messiah or the coming of a future king is Genesis 3 and verse 15. It happens soon after Adam and Eve commit the first sin and God turns to the tempter. He turns to the one who tempted them into this sin, and he says to the tempter, God does, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is thought to be the first 
prophetic word about the Messiah who would one day come. And throughout the history of Israel, they look for this Messiah. They look forward to the day when the Messiah, the anointed one from God, the ultimate king, would come and would fulfill that prophecy and many others. The one who would come and reverse the effects of the curse on this world. All that sin led to, all the consequences that seeped into every nook and cranny of this universe... All of creation infected by the curse. All humans, all relationships infected by the curse. They look forward to the day when this ultimate king would come and reverse the effects of the curse. And reverse the effects of sin. And reverse the effects of evil. And reverse the effects of death. A Messiah who would save them and liberate them. But something happened along the way in the way the Jewish people thought about this coming Messiah. Along the way, the people of Israel began to think of the coming Messiah and of the coming King as the one who would defeat their immediate enemies and make their life better. Or as the one who would liberate them from their current oppression and defeat their current oppressor and make their life better. Make them strong. Make them mighty. Raise up an army that's the Israelite army that could defeat all these other armies. They started to look for a king who would be just like all the other kings. And they would do it just the way all the other kings did it. And a shift happened when they started to go this way. The Messiah of God became the Messiah they wanted. And with all the suffering and trial and difficulty the Israelites had experienced throughout their history and in their current oppression under the thumb of the Roman Empire, their idea of a king and a kingdom had morphed into someone who would come and overthrow the Romans and lead the Israelites to freedom. Their idea of a Messiah, in other words, their idea of a king was all bound up in their current struggle. A king who will fix this might be a simple way to put it. And even the disciples who'd been with Jesus for three years and heard him speak of his kingdom and of the trials that awaited him, they did not understand what it meant to say Jesus is the king. So let me say it this way. Jesus was not the king many wanted or many expected. His whole life, from the moment his ministry became public, displayed God's power over the effects of the curse, sin, e uh, evil, and death. His whole life was an example where he was beginning to demonstrate his power over those things. He healed the blind and the leper and the possessed and the forgotten. He showed the power of the kingdom to be greater than the power of sin and evil and death and the power of the curse. You see what is happening. Throughout Jesus' life, these miracles that are being shouted out as he walks into Jerusalem are examples. They're many outbreaks of his kingdom in this cursed world where people saw it and what they realized is the curse is reversing. His power is greater than that power. That leprosy cannot withstand his touch. There were signs the tide was beginning to turn. But I want to camp on this idea for a second. Jesus was not the king people were ultimately looking for or wanting. Jesus disappointed people. He was a disappointing king because he wasn't fill-in-the-blank enough. He didn't give them what they wanted. He didn't say what they wanted him to say. He didn't align 
with their plans or with their agenda. So many people rejected him. There's a powerful two-word phrase that is now deeply embedded in our cultural liturgy. And here's the phrase. Hey, Siri. That's part of our liturgy. Hey, Siri. Got your phone. Got your iPad. Hey, Siri. I like it when the two are near each other and they're confused which Siri should respond. Hey, Siri. And then both of them in unison. "Uh Uh-huh. And it's coming from both sources. Hey, Siri, what's the temperature in London? Hey, Siri, where's the nearest Applebee's? Hey, Siri, who won the Masters Golf Tournament in 1954? Hey, Siri, write me a sermon. Whatever it might be, right? (laughs) And make sure you're clear on this. I like Hey, Siri. I use it all the time. But think of the way the cultural... More? What's that? You turned my Siri off. That's great. That's fun. Hey, Siri. Yeah, get it going with everybody. But think of the way the cultural liturgy, just think of it as a cultural liturgy. What do I mean by that? I mean it's become a phrase that forms us. It's become a two-word statement that shapes who we are. It shapes us to believe we have the right and the power to get what we want exactly when we want it. And again, I like it. I'm not trying to bash on this. But this cultural liturgy is one more force that trains us to orient around the satisfaction of our desires and the satisfaction of our wants. Fascinating. After the first service, a young mom came up to me and said, just amazing that you were talking about this Hey Siri thing. My daughter this week said something to me, asked me a question, and I said, well, you know what? Let's pray together and ask God to give us an answer to that. And she told me, she said, my daughter looked right at me and go, why ask God? We'll just ask Siri. I mean, it's it's ingrained. That's the liturgy. I mean, think of it this way. When it comes to a prayerful dependence on God where we're asking him to show up, and then sometimes we deal in that wait period where we don't know. How do you help people learn that in a culture where they just turn to a box and say, Hey, Siri, ask a question and get an answer. A cultural liturgy that is shaping people to think right now, the way I want it, as I want it. And here's the question. How does the actual Jesus of the Bible fit in a Hey, Siri culture? Hey, Jesus, do this. Hey, Jesus, I'd like that. He disappoints. The Pharisees were disappointed because he was overturning their system and confronting their power. The crowds were disappointed because they had said, Hey, Jesus, defeat Rome, set us free. So they were disappointed because Jesus didn't come and lead an insurrection. He didn't come and uproot the Romans. He didn't come and kick them out and kill them and establish a new authority. Jesus is a disappointing king. Because Jesus does not exist for us. He does not exist to fulfill our desires or to fulfill our plans. He doesn't come to preserve our system or follow our agenda. He often disrupts our peace. He often messes with our plan. He often rearranges our agenda so it matches with his. There's an old song with a simple chorus. And the song and chorus say, give me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, give me Jesus. 
And all throughout my life, give me Jesus. We've sung it here. I've sung it many times with you and on my own. But i got to tell you, this is no flowery chorus. It is, in fact, a rather dangerous request. And it is a rather dangerous prayer. Because give me Jesus means more of him, less of me. And you know and I know that process, easy to say, painful to endure. Give me Jesus. Jesus, align my entire life with you and with your will and with your kingdom. You know and I know when we pray that and we desire that and we orient our lives around that, it is usually disruptive and unsettling. And I know this may sound a bit harsh and aggressive for a sunny Palm Sunday, but there's this seesaw thing again is embedded even in this idea that Jesus is disappointing. See, the reason Jesus disappoints us is because he knows the things we want and think we need are not really the things we want or actually need. And that is why our plans and our agenda and our will are often frustrated. He's too good to give us what we think we want. Because he knows ultimately we don't want that. He's too good to give us what we think we need. Because he knows that's not what we actually need. And his desire, his agenda, his will for us is to experience his blessing and his goodness and his peace. His will is for our good. Third, this Palm Sunday king shows us he is a compassionate king. As he descends the Mount of Olives, Jesus sees the city of Jerusalem stretched out in front of him. You've got to kind of get this. He's coming out of those trees, and he looks out and he sees the city. Jerusalem, obviously a rather famous city. And one of the comments made in one of the other Gospels is that the city of Jerusalem, Jesus says, you who have a history of stoning the prophets and snuffing out the voices of those who had come to tell you the truth. So he comes out of the trees and he looks out over the city of Jerusalem. And verse 41 tells us when he saw it, he wept over it. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hid from your eyes. As he approached Jerusalem, where he knew he was to be rejected, and as he saw the city, he wept over it. I like that. I'm drawn to a king who weeps over those who reject his kingship instead of resorting to coercive power to get them to comply. He weeps. He grieves for them. Again, it doesn't make sense with what we would expect. We use these terms, king, power, king, get your subjects in line. But it's a further glimpse into the heart of your God and who he actually is. God handles rejection by weeping, not by resorting to coercive power. Jesus knows very well what's about to happen to him. He knows the cheers are soon going to stop. He knows he's going to be rejected and condemned to die. He knows he's going to suffer. And let's be clear, let's say the whole story. He speaks at the end of the scripture reading. He speaks really hard truth about the consequences the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants will face because they're rejecting him. The judgment will eventually come. They're going to get what they think they want. Life without him. 
And in a few years, the Romans will bring the full weight of their military might and they will build ramps up to the city of Jerusalem. You can actually read about this in the history books now. They'll build ramps up to the city of Jerusalem and eventually this military machine will roll into the city of Jerusalem, destroy everything in the city of Jerusalem, and in particular, the sacred place of all, they'll go to the temple and they'll tear it down. It's all going to come. There'll be bloodshed and wailing and death. It happened in 70 A.D., about 35 years after Jesus came to the edge of the city, looked out and wept over it. Jesus grieves because his people are rejecting him and they are rejecting the good he wants to bring to them. He's not angry when he sees the city. He's not pointing his finger, screaming. He's not condemning them in the way we think of that. He weeps with compassion And this is crucial. He's not weeping because he feels rejected. He's not going back and thinking, you know, no one likes me and crying about that. That's not why he's weeping. He's not weeping out of insecurity. He's weeping because he knows people are missing out. They're going their own way. He's willing to let them go their own way. He's willing to let them do life their own way. He's willing to let them construct their own system But he knows without him, trouble and destruction will eventually come. I've been to about, I don't know, maybe a thousand soccer games in my lifetime. My daughter's been playing soccer for like a thousand years, I guess, just forever. And I've noticed this about referees at soccer games. I was watching one yesterday and it hit me again. It goes something like this. A collision happens between two players and a foul is called. Referee blows a whistle. Foul is called, but that's not enough because this collision was too extreme. It's not a yellow card, not a red card, but it's beyond your typical everyday foul. So the referee blows the whistle and then calls out the player's number thought to be guilty of making this fantastic collision. And the referee summons this player to a conference right there on the field for everyone in the stadium to see. It's the dreaded Finger invitation. Hey, number six. Like this. And sitting in the stands, you hear this stuff buzzing around. Yeah, she got what she deserved. It's about time that he or she referee noticed this. She's been doing that the whole game, and finally the ref caught her and called her on it. Good. What is that? It's called celebrating another's punishment. And this illustrates, I think, a growing attitude many Christians have toward those in this culture who reject God and reject his ways. There's a kind of reveling in the demise of a culture that has cut itself free from God. Or if you will, there's this simmering, low-grade anger Christians have that is satisfied when the culture, quote, gets what it deserves. And I just want you to hear this. This is not God's heart. This is not the way of Jesus. It's our way, but it's not the way of Jesus. If there was ever a picture to capture how Jesus experiences and views culture going away from him, it's right there in Luke 19. He came to the edge of the city, he looked out upon it, and he wept. See, angry Christians, all they really do is convince non-Christians that Christianity is indeed a farce. The heart of God is revealed through the compassion, the tenderness of Jesus 
a grieving God. Lastly, Palm Sunday paints the picture of a victorious king. On that day, so many years ago, we hear this declaration, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a declaration of the new power and the new world that had begun to peek through in the coming of Jesus. This new power and this new world that the disciples, when they saw him pull Lazarus back from the dead, they thought, oh my, this is the ultimate king. Or when they saw the leper, when his skin was healed, this one has the power to reverse the curse. Or when they saw the adult woman caught in adultery and Jesus stands in front of her and says, go and sin no more. Forgiveness being granted, the curse being lifted, and these disciples saw the beginnings of the new power and the new world that began in the coming of Jesus. And I don't want to jump ahead to the joy of the resurrection, but the seesaw of Palm Sunday includes the blessing and the goodness and the joy of Jesus the King riding into Jerusalem because it is the beginning of the end of the curse. It is the beginning of the end of the power of sin and evil and death. The tide is starting to turn. This is a major chapter in God's redemptive story. And it all begins when Jesus rode out of that Mount of Olives on his way to his death. Jesus, the victorious king. Jesus, the victor over sin and evil and death. And don't miss us. The victor over the power of sin and evil and death and over the power of the curse that hovers over this planet, over this universe, over you, over me. He's shown this victory throughout his life in these many outbreaks of his kingdom where he healed the sick and liberated the oppressed, forgave the sinner and welcomed the forgotten. He was confronting in those times the effects of sin and evil and death with kingdom power. But this victory is about to take quantum leaps toward complete victory when he rises from the dead in a few days. And in doing so, he shatters the power of sin and evil and death And fulfills Genesis 3.15. He crushes the serpent's head under his nail-pierced foot. He will bite you on the heel. You're going to bleed. You're going to get poisoned. You're going to die. But you will turn around and you will crush his head. Your death will be the doorway to ultimate victory over All that is evil. See, this is Jesus, a conqueror. His power, unmatched in all the universe. Little glimpses of it here and there. But a week from now, we will gather here. And it won't be a little glimpse. It's going to be a, wait a minute. He did what? You say, the tomb is what? Power on display, fully out there, and all we look and say, the tide has now turned. The curse, it's broken. Well, it still lingers. You know it, I know it. And if you don't know it, ask someone close to you and they'll tell you about it. The curse still is there. I want to stay present to where we are in Holy Week, but it's good to revel in the victory. 
So let me ask you this. Where do you see or experience the darkness of the curse? It's all around us. Where do you experience the fatigue and the despair of sin and evil and death, either within or without? And let me just say this. Because of Jesus in this week, the tide is beginning to turn. Joy makes the most sense in the world. Hope makes sense. Celebration makes sense. Because Jesus the King, the powerful King, the one with all authority, the one of a kind King, has come into the world. And this week, we will watch Him defeat and crush the head of sin and evil and death. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we gather on this day and we recognize it's all mixed, but we worship you. signals and signs all over the place, even in this room, of people whose lives have been jarred by the curse, by the power of evil, by the burden of sin. Just incredibly difficult reminders that all is not the way it's supposed to be. And we gather on this day to look one another in the eye and lift our eyes to you and declare the tide has turned. Joy makes sense. Hope makes sense. Celebration makes sense. Because you are the one with unmatched power. And one day, someday, All things will be made well. And so we celebrate you, we worship you, and above all, we declare you to be the powerful King of kings and the mighty Lord of lords. And we do this and pray in Jesus' name.